The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning, church. My name's Kelly Grimm, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And as I said before, we are in our second week of Advent when we connect with the longing of Israel for the Messiah. We remember that God kept his promises by sending Jesus, and we remember that we are also waiting, like Israel, for the second arrival of Jesus this time. And during this season, it's a little bit of a mystery for those who have not come from a a tradition that actually acknowledges Advent, but we are supposed to feel the tension that comes with waiting during this season. That's intentional, and it should feel like that. Such as songs that we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. There's a tension in that song about waiting. But we're also supposed to feel the suspense of impending judgment. There's actually a judgment aspect to Advent as well, because we need to feel the, uh, the distinct need for a Savior during this time. That's what Advent acknowledges. But one of the things that Advent season reminds us of that's so beautiful is that the first time Jesus came, his first Advent, it was an act of mercy to prevent our deserved judgment. Jesus himself said in John 12, 47 through 48, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, Christ came the first time to show love and kindness and mercy and to save the lost. The second time that he comes that we're still waiting for will be the great reckoning and there will be no excuse for unbelief. God will punish evildoers and those who ignored the gracious and good news and the love of God. And we live in the tension between those two times, between the gift of salvation that Jesus has given us when he defeated sin and that future day when all evil will be judged and destroyed. Jesus completed the work of salvation but bad things still happen on earth. And God is full of mercy and grace to meet our need while we live in this tension. And that's what makes Advent so special. It teaches us to acknowledge the tension and then teaches us how to trust that God keeps his promises. For anyone who's dealt with a year of suffering, This is a time to remember our future hope, a a hope of a, a true hope of eternal peace. For anyone who has lost a loved one this year, this is a time to remember that Jesus will one day wipe away every tear from every eye, just as he promised. For anyone who's experienced an injustice, it's a time to remember that Christ will come to judge the world in righteousness. For the one who feels the weight of evil 
in this twisted and broken world. Advent is a time to remember that we will be eternally consoled. Now, the cool thing is that Jesus gave us small doses of that future day to give us even more hope when he was on earth as our Savior. That's what his miracles were. His miracles were little small doses of that future day. The miracles weren't just a show of Jesus' divine power, although they were. They were also a peek behind the curtain to the merciful future that he will provide for us. And one of my favorite ways that that he lets us peek behind the curtain is the compassionate healing of lowly figures. Jesus healed many, many people, and the Bible tells only a fraction of the stories of these people. But as an exercise, I would like you to put yourself in the shoes of, of, a, of a Jew with a disease or a condition in the day of Jesus. Imagine you're that person. You're living with this disease or condition without, without modern medicine. Uh, you feel the weight of the world because there often was not a cure for things that are very curable today. And your life has been full of stories about Yahweh and the promised Messiah that he would send. You grow up hearing about how God spoke the world into existence with just his words, and then one day you find yourself in the presence of a man who can just speak healing into existence. Can you imagine just how incredible that would be? The man then heals you, and you no longer have to bear the burden of your illness. You sit in bed that night and you wonder, did that actually happen? What would it have been like when they laid their head in their bed that night after a lifetime in some cases of illness? I'm sure it was joy in some cases and, and probably awe bordering on disbelief, wondering if they'd wake up and it was all a dream. I'm sure they felt thankfulness dose of curiosity, and they probably woke up in the morning, still healed, with the satisfaction of knowing that the stories that they grew up with, they were true. And that, church, is what we are supposed to feel when we read their stories. But to feel that feeling ourselves, we must realize that that these are not just make-believe stories that we read on Sunday. And they're, they're real people who were truly healed from real diseases, who had real beds that they wandered in that night when they were healed. I pray that the Spirit stirs these emotions in our hearts today the way that he did for those people who Jesus personally healed. Because church, the stories are true. The advent, the arrival of Jesus was real and it, was, it has a massive impact on our lives today. So, let's read our sermon text and then we'll pray. Open your Bibles to Luke 14, 
verses 1 through 6, Luke 14, verses 1 through 6. If you're using the Bible in the back of the seat in front of you, you'll find it on page 873. And you may need it because I think we had some technical difficulties uh, that the scripture may not be on the screen today. Luke 14, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him, and he healed him, and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we just read your word. It is a God-breathed word. It will have an effect on our lives. And I pray that even though this is just a simple story that you would show us the great magnitude it has in our lives. Help me to teach it faithfully and change our lives by your Spirit's work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, what we just read was the, th- the story of Jesus' third Sabbath healing. He's making a point by doing healings on the Sabbath. This is his third one in Luke. And if you're not familiar with Jewish culture, I'll give you a little update. The law of Moses, the law that God gave Moses, says that you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest and worship and reflection dedicated to God. Now, the leaders of the Jewish people, who were the Pharisees, and the people who interpreted the law of God, the lawyers, many of them interpreted the Sabbath laws very strictly. So strictly that they considered Jesus' miraculous healings to be work. And because it was work, Jesus shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. And beyond that, if they, they were saying that because of all of this, Jesus couldn't be from God because if he was from God, they would, then he would honor their Sabbath interpretation of the law and by, by basically not healing people. So he couldn't be from God. That's kind of the trap they were trying to put him in. In response to this tradition, Jesus shows the lawyers and the Pharisees a sick man who was in their presence, and he asks them directly, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Like I said, he asked direct questions, but they didn't answer him. And Jesus then heals the man, and he asks a simple question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And of course, all of them would have pulled out their son or an ox out of the well, and so they shut their mouths, and Jesus dropped the mic. Figured to be speaking, obviously. This is a very simple story. But the story has a resounding impact on our understanding of God and our understanding of his character and his disposition toward humanity. 
mirroring the simplicity of the scripture, I'm going to give you a very simple, straightforward biblical truth. And uh, the biblical truth is just this. The Son of God came to heal the sick and comfort the lowly. The Son of God came to heal the sick and comfort the lowly. Now, sure, Jesus came for a lot of reasons, particularly saving the world from sin and proclaiming the gospel. But the broader reasons don't cancel out the more specific ones like healing and comforting people. Actually, you might even say that healing the sick and comforting the lowly are small pictures, microcosms of the impact the gospel will have on the entire world when he's finished. They're whispers of the renewed creation. So let's look at this truth a little bit more closely and see what this passage of Scripture shows us about our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. I have three supporting truths about Jesus that will help us dig deeper into this Scripture. Here's our first supporting truth. Number one, Jesus is the hope of the sick. This truth is very obvious because the story is about Jesus healing a sick man. But, as we've mentioned before in another sermon recently, this subject is actually very hard for us to process. Why doesn't God heal me? Why doesn't God heal my loved one? What, what, what does this miracle done to one man have to do with me, especially since it was at the time that Jesus walked the earth? Well, let's look at this man who was sick in this passage, and we'll see what it has to do with us. We don't know his name. He's anonymous. All we know is that he was near Jesus, and he had a sickness called dropsy. Now, we don't really use that term anymore for the condition, Uh, But dropsy is the same condition we call edema. It occurs when fluid gathers in parts of your body and causes you to swell in certain areas. And Jesus heals the man, and we can only assume that the onlookers were watching as the swelling went away. Jesus can heal any sickness, and it couldn't have been smoke and mirrors. Many of us are tempted to believe that Jesus' healings were some sort of sleight-of-hand trick. If you're new to scripture, you probably look at that and go, he's probably, you know, he's probably doing something there to fool people. But when we hear of the dead being raised, we're tempted to think that they were probably asleep or maybe in a coma, you know. Or when Jesus heals the crippled, we're tempted to think that, ah, it was just staged, you know. But none of that's true, by the way. All of these healings were real, and when it comes to dropsy or edema, uh, a a part of a man's body body probably shrunk right before their very eyes. And in this story, if you notice, no one there denied the reality of the healing. No one is decrying Jesus for healing. They just didn't like the day he did it on. But when we realize the reality of this, if it was real then why doesn't Jesus heal us sometimes when we ask him? And first I'll say, sometimes he does. Uh, I've seen doctors who were perplexed, dumbfounded at the miraculous healing of individuals. But even more than that, more common, we've seen 
God used doctors to heal people all the time. That is the work of God through people. But I want you to notice more closely how this first supporting truth is worded in a particular way. Jesus is the hope of the sick. Is he the healer of the sick? Yes, just as he was in this story. But whether or not Jesus heals us of our sickness when we ask, he is always the hope of the sick. God in his providence sometimes doesn't heal us when we ask, but that's not because of God's cruelty or some sick pleasure he has in watching people suffer. It's quite the opposite. Jesus has a way of using difficulty such as sickness in our lives to make our faith stronger. He wants us to lean on him rather than lean on ourselves, and he knows that this is good for us. It's better for us. But there are also a thousand good reasons why God might not choose to heal us right away. The thing to know is that every single one of those reasons is under God's control. Jesus is the hope of the sick. Even if he chooses not to heal us in this life, if we have faith in him, he will heal us at the latest when we open our eyes in paradise. The wheelchair of your spouse or your parent or your grandparent, it will be gone on that day. And they will walk unassisted. They will even run. They will probably want to run. <laughs> the multiple tones of ringing that I have in my ears when I lost my hearing years ago, they will be gone and the sweet relief of silence will be mine again. No more pardon me's, I'm sorry I didn't hear you, can you repeat that? No more of that. I will hear silence again, uninterrupted people speaking to me. And I'll also hear the beautiful sound of holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. The chronic pain that you deal with, the Son of God will put an end to it. And your joints will move freely. And your furrowed brow that is so stressed because of your pain, it will relax. And your muscles will no longer be tense. And physical, everlasting peace will be one of, of God's many good gifts to you in that day. Maybe that day will be sooner. I hope so. Because God still heals. But keep praying for that healing. I know I pray for myself. But what we must realize today is that hope in Christ is a perfect hope. Perfect. Unfailing. Jesus is the hope of the sick. We will all be healed on that day if we have faith in Jesus. Now let me point you back again to the Advent season. Remember our Advent season that the Lopez has read. A passage was written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And I'm going to read a part of that again for you because this prophecy points to Jesus. This is what Isaiah 35 says in verses 2 through 6. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I know that this man who had dropsy had to have sung for joy, maybe even run. But did Jesus heal this man only for his joy, or did he heal him for all of us? Now, I believe that Jesus healed him for his personal joy, yes. But he also healed him to bring us joy. That man's healing was a gracious sign for all of us. For those who were waiting intently for the Messiah, this was proof. The Messiah had come. He was fulfilling all that God had promised. They watched him as he healed somebody from dropsy. The years of waiting were over. The advent of the Messiah had come. So many prophecies and so many years of waiting Isaiah himself prophesied in another text that the, that the Messiah would heal all of our diseases and sickness has affected us all. Whether it's physical or mental, or maybe you're just looking at me crazy and you're like, I have good health. What are you talking about? Well, there's one way that we've all been affected. We were all spiritually dead before trusting in Jesus. Death is a sickness. And Jesus is the hope of the sick. He will heal all his people. He started with healing individuals like the man in today's story, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has begun the healing of the entire world. Church, the best is yet to come. Jesus is the hope of the sick, and if you hope in him, your hope will not be in vain. Now let's move on. We only have so much time. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again just as a reminder. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Based on that text, our second supporting truth is this. Number two, Jesus is the comforter of the lowly. This is a little bit vague uh, in the text, but I think I, can, I think I can help you see this very clearly. At the beginning of our text today, we saw that Jesus accepted an invitation to the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus isn't afraid of being associated with any class of people. Rich, he'll eat with you. Poor, he'll give you his best. Sick, he'll heal you. He'll even touch you, which is unheard of for some Jewish people in these situations. Jesus associates with anyone. But if we look at the life of Jesus across the Gospels, it's almost like he prefers to be with the lowly. 
lowly disciples, lowly sick people, lowly women. He just prioritizes them, and he loves them, and I love it. I love that he does this. When I wrote this sermon, I almost made the second supporting truth, Jesus esteems the lowly, because I think that there's more than just comfort that we can find here. Jesus seems to lift up the lowly, not just comfort them. The Jewish leaders, on the other hand, in contrast to Jesus, seem to ignore, or worse, they even put spiritual burdens on people's backs, making the lowly's life even harder. And Jesus knew exactly how to point out their hypocrisy. So he asked them a simple question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they wouldn't answer. So right before their eyes, Jesus did, did what they completely disagreed with, and he healed a man on the Sabbath. And then he, he revealed the weakness of their views. He basically said, if any one of your children or an oxen fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull them out? Now, can we look at the implication of that question? That's where we see what Jesus is saying to the person with dropsy. Children and oxen, what do they have to do with the situation in the first century? Children and oxen were people's treasures. They were their treasures. Your children, if you have them, are probably, I hope, some of the greatest treasures in your life. If you lived in an agrarian society, an oxen would be a treasure to you. It is your well-being. Now, the core of what Jesus is trying to get across as an aside, the core of Jesus' lesson is that he's teaching that if you have the law wrong, if you think it comes before loving your neighbor, because correctly obeying God's law never makes its adherents oppressors and abusers. But he's not just calling this sick man his neighbor. He's, he's telling his audience that the sick man is valuable to him. Let me say that in a different way. The son of God insinuated that the sick man was one of his treasured possessions. And consider where Jesus said this. He dignified the sick man while at the table of the ruler of the Pharisees, who is one of the most important people in Jewish society. How would that have felt if you were the one who was healed in that situation? How do we feel when our boss in a room full of employees points us out and commends us for what we've done? How's that feel? Feel good? Yeah? How does, how does your child feel after the game when a coach points them out as the most valuable player of the game? Pretty good, right? Well, how much better would it be if God himself placed value on you just because it's you and not because of something you've done to deserve it? Because that's what happened to this man. In the same way that a father would say, you are too valuable, valuable to me, son. I can't leave you in this well, not even on the Sabbath. Jesus says to this man with dropsy, you are too valuable to me. I don't want you to live with this sickness, so I'm going to heal you even on the Sabbath. Gracious, that's good comfort, isn't it? Now, I once had a professor 
in seminary uh, say something to me that I just flat out can't forget. We were studying the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who grieve, etc., etc. And Dr. Wiarda, at my seminary, he said this. Jesus doesn't play favorites with people. But I'd go as far as saying that he does seem to push people who are suffering and grieving to the front of his line for his comfort. I'll never forget that. Christ comforts the lowly. They're at the front of the line to receive his grace. And lowliness is not a foreign concept to our God. He knows the experience. The Son of God experienced lowliness in his life as a man on earth. He stepped into his own creation. He created it. And then he stepped into it after we had made it a mess. He was born of a virgin. And many people at that time probably thought he was born in sin because they didn't understand this wild concept of conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of hard to understand. And he immediately had his life threatened by Herod and immediately became a refugee in Egypt. And he grew up without royal trappings and without fanfare, even though he was the one who created the sun and the moon. He was poor and he was homeless. He lived a life of scrutiny from religious leaders, even though he was the God who carved Moses' law into stone. And he did, he died a torturous death at the hands of a regional governor with the vehement consent of the people that he set apart as his treasured possessions. The Son of God gets what it's like to be lowly. And he lives today to take the lowly in as his royal adopted brothers and sisters, and he shares his divine inheritance with them all. Jesus is the comforter of the lowly, the one who esteems the lowly. He saves sinners and makes them his treasured possessions. Glory to God for the lowly advent of his son. And glory to God for the forthcoming second advent of Christ where he will make his reign known to all and he will lift the lowly one last time into a royal inheritance. Now finally, let me point out one last thing. Have you noticed that the Pharisees and the lawyers have you noticed what they said to Jesus in today's scripture? Did you see their accusations? Did you see their response or retort? Did you see the defense that they had for their ways? Take a look. Take a close look. What words have they spoken to Jesus regarding this miracle healing and his interpretation of the Sabbath laws? I'll tell you what. They said nothing. Nada. They didn't say a single word from the front of the story to the end of the story. They've tried speaking up to Jesus in hostility before, and they learned their lesson. 
Don't speak up. He will shut us down. And if you or I confront Jesus in hostility, you and I will find ourselves sitting silent before him too one day. Our third supporting truth is this. Jesus is the silencer of the prideful and oppressive. He's the silencer of the prideful and oppressive. In verse 3, we read that Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, but we never hear a word that the lawyers and the Pharisees said to Jesus. Maybe they were, you know, around the table bragging with each other casually about their devotion to God and how they never do work on the Sabbath. Maybe they were waxing eloquently about how they, they're blessed with good health because of their devotion to the law. Whatever it is, we don't know. But we do know that Jesus responded to them, and more than once before, he has responded to people's silent thoughts. So maybe that's what he's doing here. We're not told. Something else that we know for sure, though, is they wouldn't answer Jesus' question about the lawfulness of healing on the Sabbath. And they were silent yet again when Jesus called them out for their hypocrisy. You see, they proved their pride by putting their hope in their interpretation of the law when they didn't even understand that the foundation of the law of God is love. Their hope was in their own abilities, their own high view of the law. Their righteousness was so great that they went above and beyond what the law required. They proved the height of their pride and the absence of their humility, and Jesus loves to see humility in his people. They were so busy building proverbial towers to reach God with their great deeds that they didn't see the wrecking ball named the humble Jesus coming to to demolish all that they so proudly built. Jesus comes against the prideful and he eventually silences them. And by failing to understand that the law of God is established on love of God and love of neighbors, we can find ourselves using the law as a means to oppress others. God will silence us on the last day if we choose to use the law in an unsuitable way. The Pharisees were so committed to the law of Moses that they put up a roadblock between a sick man and the source of his healing. This is not the way of love. But we still do this today. We can often make the mistake of at least giving some, some people the, the, the idea that they must obey God to please him and earn his favor. And really nothing could be more different from the truth. Don't put that roadblock before the lost. Jesus fulfilled every line of the law for us so that we could enter God's presence on Jesus' merit, not our own. So we trust him for salvation and then we learn how to obey. 
That is what the gospel is good news for, because Jesus did it, Jesus did it for us. And Jesus fulfilled, well, let me just put it this way. I have personally witnessed people add to the law by making it essentially a requirement to be a registered Republican because that's the political association of every Christian that you know. But if the requirement cannot be found in Scripture, that you cannot require that of your neighbor. That is often a cultural roadblock for some people who need to see Jesus, not whether you're Republican. You see, we can make the same mistake that the Pharisees and the lawyers made. And like a toddler who's telling his parents what the rules of the house are, these Jewish leaders were telling the God of all creation how to interpret his own law. How foolish is that? And how foolish is it when we make the same error? When we make rules that go above and beyond God's law, or when we forget to love our neighbor, we can put unnecessary burdens on people's backs and turn ourselves into oppressors. And the God of all creation will silence oppressors on the last day, as he did in this story. Church, the Son of God came to heal the sick and to comfort the lowly. One day, the silence of the prideful and oppressive will be a great comfort to those who are lowly. Before that day, we must choose which side we will stand on. Will we choose to recognize our need for Jesus to heal us? Will we choose to associate with the sick and the lowly? Or will we spend our time courting the prideful and learning the tricks of the oppressor? Jesus, the king of creation, the rightful heir to the throne, he chose to humble himself as a child. He chose to most closely associate with the sick and the lowly, with sinners and the marginalized. He still accepted the invitation to the prideful and oppressive. But even Jesus was not content to let them stay stuck in the well of pride that they fell into. Even the Pharisees and the lawyers. So he threw them a rope. He threw them a rope. He revealed their sin, and he showed them the way of God. And he's shown it to you and I as well. This Advent season, allow yourself to acknowledge the pain in your life, the suffering and the grief. Know that just as Israel had to wait generations for the Messiah so you and I may have to wait for our own healing, for our pain to be relieved. But that day is coming. And in many ways, the healing has already begun with our faith in Jesus who is making all things new, even in our own hearts. And until that day when Jesus comes again, we wait. 
knowing that what God promises will come to pass and there will be an end to our waiting. On Christmas Eve, we will remember the birth of Jesus and the recollection of that hope that was realized in Jesus will help us remember that our hope for the, for the fullness of Christ's kingdom to come will be realized one day too. If you're sick, if you're lowly, if you're marginalized, Christ has come for you and will not let your hope in him be proven empty. Hold fast, church. The day is coming. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, your son, is just an amazing person. What he does for us is something that we could not do for ourselves. He reveals in kindness our sin and he reveals in kindness the way of Jesus for salvation. I pray that you would help us as a church not to put roadblocks between people and the source of their healing. Help us to make the requirements for salvation the requirements that you set forward not ones that we hold dear in our own hearts because of our culture. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge our pain and our suffering and submit them to you because you are the healer and you are the hope of those who need healing. Comfort us in our waiting, Lord, as we wait for the Son of Jesus, the Son of God to, to come again. We long for that day and help us to be patient, but help us not to forget that our hope is in you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.